0: Hello and welcome back to Homefront with uh, Binyamin Rose and myself, Gadalia Gutentag, covering Israel's biggest conflict, the uh, a generation. Binyamin, hello to you. Hello, Gadalia. So we don't know where the hostage deal, when, where, and when it will happen. Until the first captives walk free, they'll be fighting, and indeed rocket salvos and bombardments from both sides, until they go into the ceasefire, because that's the nature of these things. Each side wants to uh, strengthen their position and remind the other side it's not going away. So let's go beyond that issue, which will play out over Friday and Shabbos. And let's use this platform of last podcast of the week to get a look at some of the wider context. So let's back up a little bit, you know, because we're starting to see the Shiva tunnel tour industrial complex happening. And see what you've got some words to share about that.
1: Correct. Earlier in the week, I spoke about that uh, there were a lot of dangers and hazards involved and it was going to take time for Israel to uh, dig underneath Shifa Hospital and see exactly what's there. And uh, that's what they've been doing for the last couple or three days, uh, because it's crucial that they prove this point to the world that there was terror infrastructure underneath the hospital. So it it just struck me that I've done the tunnel tours underneath the COSEL, and I'm sure you have, and most of our listeners have also. And uh, Daniel Hagari, who is the chief spokesman for the IDF, did his own tunnel tour. It was a 10-minute video. And I understand there's been a handful of journalists who've gone down there also, but Gari took this tour. First, uh, what they did was they sent a drone down there. Then they send a dog down there to check, and then they send a a special unit to uh, make sure that the coast is clear and that it's maneuverable. And then Hagari himself took his camera and he showed us around. He gave us a little tour. Now, there's nothing fancy about it, although I did notice that they did have one nice stainless steel sink in the kitchen, which was probably not inexpensive. But Hamas had dormitory rooms there. You could see the metal frames of two beds on different sides of the room. You could see an air conditioner along the wall, which was hooked up to the outside so that they can get fresh, cool air and heat. There were bathroom facilities. There was all sorts of setup for electricity and communications. And aside from weapons that have been found in other parts of the hospital, it's obvious now that There were tunnels and are tunnels underneath Shifa Hospital, and they connect to the street, they connect to different wings of the hospital, and they allowed Hamas fighters to go in and out and find a safe harbor in there. So we still have more digging to do, but at this point, we've proven our point, and we've shown that there was definitely Hamas infrastructure operating underneath these hospitals. And the reason why operationally it's important is because under international law, You can't uh, invade hospitals, mosques, uh, other historical sites unless it's certain that these sites are being used for uh, military purposes, and then all bets are off. So now we've shown that this site has been used for military purposes, and we were absolutely 100% justified in going in there and doing what needs to be done. And now it looks like the fighting is going to head down south, although I understand that there were some remarks yesterday at a State Department press conference where the U S insisted that Israel provide them with better operational guidance as to what they plan on doing in the South and how they plan on uh, taking care of the civilian population. And again, this boogeyman is coming up. So I mentioned this because this morning, Mayor Ben Shabbat, who was a former national security advisor, was interviewed in Globes. And he mentioned two things about this. He said that in reference to allowing fuel into Gaza, If it's being done because of U.S. pressure and he's not on the inside anymore, so he he can't tell for sure, but he said the uh, operational significance of the matter should have been clarified with them, meaning not what we plan on doing operationally, but we need to explain to the U.S. very clearly that any fuel is going to be diverted by Hamas and used for military. His quote was, they should understand that allowing in fuel will probably not significantly improve the situation of the population. Well, on the other hand, it will most likely prolong the duration of the fighting and increase the risk to our forces.
0: Bill, do you not think that the U.S. understands this well and true? They're not stupid. They understand that the sovereign in this Gaza Strip is Hamas.
1: Gadali, I'm not sure. If if you have someone like Mayor Ben-Shabbat, who's a national security advisor, who's uh, questioning this, it could be he's trying to be clever. And it could be that the, the U.S. has a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on here just because of their hashkafah if you will, because of their uh, worldview. Now, the last thing Mayor Ben Shabbat mentioned is his impression is that the U.S. position assumes that in the Gaza Strip, enemy fighters can be separated from the population and that the fighting is carried out against the enemy separately from the state apparatus. And his concluding line was these two assumptions are not the reality. So if he feels that this is the way the U.S. is looking at it, then... Obviously, there are some fundamental misperceptions that uh, either America is working under or they're trying to force upon us.
0: Yeah, I mean, let me add to that and just a war game further, because this is clearly, we've finished stage one, we have the ceasefire, which will be the intermediate period, and then you have stage two in the, in the south. And our colleague from the Hebrew edition, uh, Israeli Yoskovich, had a very useful interview with a former Air Force commander by the name of Etan ben who were providing some insight into what is possibly the options for going forward in the South. He said that, number one, obviously, ideally, from a military perspective, you carry on and do to the South what you did to the North, which is what they are in the process of doing to the North, which is demolish the infrastructure, hunt every last one of them down, and be done with it. But he said it's likely we haven't, and this is what we noted weeks ago, Binyar, I mean, it was always going to be obvious, if you send all the Northern Gaza, the bulk of Gaza's citizenry streaming to the South, and then demolish the north. You can't very well tell them a few weeks later, you know, go from the south to the north and start the same business again. It's not going to happen. And therefore, the resulting international pressure is going to be enormous, as we can already start seeing from the state department. And therefore, there needs to be an option. It may well be that we cannot carry out what we need to do the, the optimum we're operating militarily. Therefore, he said, we may end up with a situation like in the West Bank, where we surround them, where we control the roads in between them, where we're raiding into their territory, where we're constantly hitting them. But he says, just like in the West Bank in the last few weeks, what have we been doing? We've gone and killed over 100 Hamas members, arrested hundreds more, and therefore what well, this could look like, and we have no peace, but we can't, we're in a position close enough that we fire at them and we grind them from the air and we use special forces raids to go inside and to pinpoint things. But it may well be that we cannot achieve in the South what we do in the North. But the key thing he's saying is that situation is not equal to Israel's defeat. Rather, it means we can bring down Hamas as an offensive, capable power and grind them down. And crucially, you know, that will mean it will be far longer in the South. It won't be as pretty, if you like, from a military perspective of these victory pictures that we're getting used to now. But that may be the only option due to international pressure.
1: I've said before on this program, and I'll say it again, that Egypt has to be a solution here. And without pressure on Egypt to accept a certain number of refugees, at least in 10 cities on a temporary basis, while we clean up the South, you're probably right, we won't be able to be as effective in the South as we were in the North. But as long as we do keep security control of the Gaza area and the surroundings, then at the end of the day, we'll be in a lot better situation than we were before October 7th.
0: Benjamin, let's just talk at the end of the week over here. And I just want to raise a point. I had a conversation yesterday with a man in his 50s. He was served for many years in Milouim. And his last posting was in Gaza just before the engagement, in 2005. And there was an interesting conversation because he was describing to me the kind of the terrors of being in a static form of warfare, which is what Israel's troops are going to be when the ceasefire comes into effect. The Hamas are up above the ground and Israel's forces are not able to take the offensive. And it's going to be very, very difficult and requires very high readiness to make sure they're not attacked. And he said it was so bad that in those watches of the night, it was so skin of every bush and everything moving. He said that what we were doing was firing tens of flares at night in order just to, to light up the whole landscape because we just need to know what was in front of us. He said it's very, very difficult to be engaged in that form of warfare but in, in the context of what's the ceasefire that's an important thing. And the second thing he was saying was that we're discussing Gaza's uh, Jewish history because when this man was stationed in Gaza, his wife's grandfather said that you're in Gaza. We grew up in Gaza till age 10. This man's uh, grandfather-in-law said, go out to al Salah Salahadin, which as we can keep mentioning is the main north-south thoroughfare in, in Gaza. He said, can you check if there's a the kind of a shop over there where we used to go to as a kids? And he went he said, yes, indeed, it's actually there. Israel is now familiarizing itself with something that was once very familiar to generations of Israelis who went shopping there, who did the military service over there. And it reminds me that there's Jewish history there. Our colleague, uh, a friend, Nachi Weinstein, with his, uh, he's got a podcast from Chatter, had, did an episode this week on Rabbi Najara, Nadjarah, who composed Koriboyn and was a great figure hundreds of years ago. And he's buried in Gaza and his son the off there. And I, mean, I actually poked around where is Rabbi Israel buried. And it seems that it was known until in 1956, when Israel briefly reconquered the Gaza Strip in the Sina operation. It was for a brief period before they handed it back. Israelis would go there and they'd go to the cave of Restore Najara. Now, where's it located? It's located in the neighborhood of the Shujaya, which is a Hamas stronghold in the northern Gaza Strip. But it seems to have disappeared because when the Egyptians took back after the Israelis were forced to retreat in 1956, they plowed over the Abbasakhoros. So there is a deep in all Jewish uh, history. So when we're talking about all the stuff about Gaza, everything has associations. And so I think, as we go and we're seeing Koriboy and around Restore mm-hmm. Najara, I'm sure there's soldiers sitting there who are now operating, they started operating this week, actually, in Shujaia. I think that the number one hit song along Amistral Yisrael Chai will be Korriban there in
1: Gaza. I wish to you and to listeners everywhere a good Shabbos.